Is there such a thing as the unpardonable sin? Think of a sin that's so egregious that it can never actually be forgiven. What would it be? In this sermon, based on Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24 to 32, we take a look at the subject of the unpardonable sin. And we see what it's not and what it is. I'm Bob McAvoy. This is the Semper Reformata podcast. We have noticed in Matthew chapter 12 that the kingdom of God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had already said to them, Uh, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's pointed out to the people, and he has pointed out to the religious leaders that he is the, the Messiah. He's proved it to them. He's proved it by declaring that the law points to him, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. He's proved it to them by healing the sick. He says to them in verse 12, How much then is a man better than a sheep, wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day? He has proved it to them by fulfilling prophecy. Already we have seen that he has fulfilled the prophecy in verse 17, written and spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He has, of course, charged the people that they do not make that known, but he has been already a subject of a fulfilled prophecy. He has taken authority over the devil in verse 22. In the passage that we read, one was brought to him, possessed with a devil, and blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch as the blind and dumb both spake and saw. All the people marveled and said, Surely, is this not the son of David? And he has proved his messiahship by irrefutable logic. He has devastated the Pharisees through the logic of his argument. In verse 26, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? But if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. It's irrefutable logic. And yet, the Pharisees don't want to accept this. And all of these various methods have been used to illustrate and to demonstrate the divinity of the Lord Jesus. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees are still determined to destroy him, still determined to have him accused of healing on the Sabbath day, casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the so-called dumb god, and committing shocking blasphemy against Jesus. 
In verse 31, he talks about blasphemy. In verse uh, 32, verse 31 to verse 32, he talks specifically about something called the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. James Montgomery Boyce sees a, a tone change in the narrative here. He thinks that at this point, Jesus kind of moves from teaching to preaching. Because up until now in the chapter, he has been teaching people. He has been almost like delivering a lecture. And you can see that in his logical conclusion to the lecture. He's been doing it with implacable precision and with logic. But now there's an application. Now there's a challenge. Now it becomes a sermon, a proclamation about the truth, about life and death and eternity. And now he's demanding a response from his listeners, from the religious Pharisees who believe that eternity is gained through your good works. He's challenging them. Let's look at that challenge. Let's challenge ourselves. One of the first things that Jesus talks about in verse 29, as far as this challenge is concerned, is that Satan is bound. Verse 29. Or else, he says, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? Then he will spoil his house. Jesus uses an illustration here. It's an illustration to prove to the Pharisees how he has cast out a demon and healed the man who was demon-possessed by God's power, not the power of Beelzebub, as they had been saying. He's using a parable to explain something about the control that he had over that demon. In verse 29, who is the strong man? Well, in the parable, the strong man is Satan. He's wisely described here as a strong man. Let's not underestimate his strength. He is a powerful foe. We shouldn't overestimate his strength either, for he's also a defeated foe. And it talks here about the strong man's house. Now, where is his house? Well, of course, right now he dwells. He has a kingdom, this adversary of the soul. The kingdom is the kingdom of this world, and he holds it in his grip. Of course, he does. He's a tyrant who enslaves its citizens. In St. Colin, this morning at Ballymacashan, I began a series from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, on contemporary ethics. And we've been looking this morning at transgenderism. And if ever there was a satanic attack on the human race, then that surely must be it. For even little children... Their lives are being destroyed. If it wasn't bad enough that we murder our children, uh, not only in the womb, but now apparently when they have left the womb as well, we're now, for those that survive this abortion-led culture, we are now going to allow them at five years of age 
to determine what gender they are going to be for the rest of their lives, and we're going to feed them with mind-altering and body-altering drugs. And when it comes to puberty, they'll have puberty-blocking drugs. And then when it comes to their teenage years, they'll have radical surgery that will be painful and, in many cases, irreversible. Satan has this sinful world in his grip. We see it in modern ethics. But that's not his eternal house. Eternally, Satan will find his dwelling place will be the lake of fire. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, in verse 7, we read these words, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, to gather them together to battle. The number of them is as the sound of the sea. And it talks about them going up the breadth of the earth and encompassing this camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire coming down from God out of heaven and devouring them. And it concludes like this in verse 10. The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Although Satan's done a great job depicting himself as a wee, fat, red man with a pitchfork in charge of hell. He's nothing of the sort. He's nothing of the sort. Modern myth is far off the mark. Satan will be eternally punished for his rebellion against God. And the point is that he wants to take you with him. And he wants to take me with him. And he wants to take every other human being with him into that dreadful eternal punishment forever and ever. Where who is this strong man? It is Satan. Where is his house? Right now, he's got a kingdom. And it's the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says that he we are to plunder his goods. How did he do that? He did it by the gospel. For every time a soul is saved, that soul is plucked from Satan's grasp. He's brought from darkness into light. He's brought from the devil's kingdom into God's kingdom. He's set free from bondage and sin and sorrow and the condemning filth of his life. Now the interesting point here is that this enemy of the soul is bound. Jesus has bound this strong man. This is the really important part. For there are many people today in the visible church who think that this reference to binding the strong man is something that we do. That we have to do spiritual warfare and have to bind the strong man over every situation in our life. That we must have some kind of supernatural attainment for the believer where we can rise to a higher level of faith and do spiritual warfare and bind the devil. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
For Jesus gained victory over Satan. And Satan was bound at Calvary. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, came into that world, into this world to save sinners. And we concentrate on that. And we rejoice in that. But sometimes we think and we forget that there are other effects that the mission of Christ at the cross had in this world. And John the Apostle reminds us in 1 John 3 and 8, he tells us that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. They were destroyed at Calvary. So when Jesus talks to the Pharisees here, he talks about binding the strong man, about breaking into his house, about plundering his goods. He's using that as a parable to explain how Satan was defeated at the cross. Of course, immediately after that, he issues the challenge. And he says, whosoever, he is not, sorry, verse 30, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. We looked a wee bit at that last time. We reminded ourselves that in the context of these verses, it is clear enough to need no further comment. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. You must be his committed follower and his alone and if you're not then you're against him in the book of Joshua chapter 24 Joshua challenges the people he says if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord choose ye this day whom ye will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord the challenge is issued and then he goes on And in verse 31, he talks about sins that can be forgiven. Which sins can be pardoned. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. See, the Pharisees had blasphemed, hadn't they? They blasphemed against God. They blasphemed against his son. They'd attributed his healing work to the, to the work of the devil. They've said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. It's a terrible blasphemy. Blasphemy is a, a spoken verbal sin against God, a shocking breach of God's law. One of the most frequently used blasphemies. You will see it and hear it. You will read it on social media. Is this OMG habit? Even in television commercials, 
conversations, casual conversations on social media. The OMG abbreviation has become commonplace. There's even a television ad on UTV for some kind of sausages. And the family are arriving home from abroad and they arrive at the family home and the mother of the family runs out to meet them and exclaims, oh my God, it's an offensive and it's a, it's a, a, a slur that grates on the ears because it's so unnecessary. It's blasphemy against the most high God and it's part of our everyday speech. And yet God tells us in his law, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Blasphemy is a sin. It's a sin that comes from our wicked, sinful hearts. It's a sin that brings us condemnation. It's a sin that will earn us eternal punishment. That blasphemy that's so common in society is in fact a shocking revelation of the depth of our sinful nature. A few verses on down, in verse 34, Jesus talks about speech because they have blasphemed and sinned with their mouths. And he talks about speech and he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. By thy words thou shalt be condemned. Blasphemy is sin. And the wages of sin is death. You think they would know that? When they take the name of the Lord so flippantly in everyday conversation. And yet, you know, there's pardon even for that blasphemy. Like every other sin, blasphemy can be forgiven. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And the prophet says, Come now and let us Reason together, says the Lord. Even though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Even though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The vilest of blasphemers, the man or the woman with the filthiest mouth can be in heaven. Not because God overlooks that kind of bad language, but because he forgives it through Christ and his work at the cross. For at the cross, Jesus took all of their vile calumnies and all of their filthy language upon himself and he bore it in his own body. Imagine the spotless Son of God bearing all that blasphemy. And God poured out his wrath upon sin on his son 
so that the fine, the punishment that was due for our bad language is paid and can be forgiven. Jesus sets the sin of blasphemy firmly in the context of his atoning work. Look what he says. Verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. There it is. Even in verse 32. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. You see, there's forgiveness for every sin. It's the extent of the atonement. The vilest of blasphemers, every sin. That should fill our hearts with joy and with gratitude. Every sin can be forgiven, no matter how filthy, no matter how vile, no matter how hideous. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, describing the amazing breadth of the atonement in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or extorters will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the good bit. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Oh yes. The greatest of sinners can be washed in the blood of Christ and be saved. Even blasphemy. That's good news. But wait. The extent of the atonement is very great. But the application of the atonement is an entirely different thing. For it then says in verse 31 and verse 32, All manner of blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Verse 32, Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the next. There is one single sin that can never ever be forgiven. Just one. People have talked about the unpardonable sin. And there are people who become really anxious about this. Pastors will tell you that people have come to them really worried about their soul. And they have asked the question, have I, could I, have committed the unpardonable sin? Well, the answer to that has to be a resounding no, hasn't it? For if they committed that great sin, they wouldn't be concerned. They wouldn't be asking. They would be willfully sinning and enjoying their sin and going on the road to a lost eternity without any form of conscience awakening them. But here's the scenario. Here's what happens. God reveals himself to a person. Maybe he's revealed himself to these scribes or Pharisees in this passage. Over and over and over again, in different ways, God has spoken through Christ. Jesus has shown himself to be the Messiah. Now, how does God reveal himself to a blinded, careless sinner? 
and he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. In the book of John, chapter 16, we read about that. Jesus says there that when he leaves, the Comforter will come. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit, preparing an unbeliever to seek the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us aware of the law we have broken. It is the Holy Spirit who brings upon us the dread at the just punishment that awaits us in eternity. It is the Holy Spirit who draws us to the cross. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the very faith that we need to trust in Christ, for faith is a gift of God. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates our dead spirit within us. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ to us as he has been doing in the sight of the scribes and Pharisees. What are they doing? But rebelling against the work of the Holy Spirit, saying that his work is the devil's work, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. And since it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting us of our sins and bringing us to Christ that a person can be saved. A person who rejects and blasphemes against the Holy Ghost will never experience forgiveness. The words of Jesus here are a warning to every unrepentant sinner. In the book of Acts chapter 28, Paul is arrested by the Jews. He's standing trial. He's testifying before King Agrippa. King Agrippa is listening. He is moved by the Apostle Paul's testimony, pointing as it was to the saving work of Christ on the cross. And it's challenging him. As Jesus challenged these scribes and Pharisees, as he challenges us, Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost. The American Christian poet, in words that are too challenging for modern Christians, paraphrases it. He says, and he wrote, almost persuaded, now to believe, almost persuaded, Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, go spirit, go thy way, some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded. Harvest is past. Almost persuaded. And death comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to feel. Sad the bitter wail. Almost 
at last. In the book of Hebrews, we read this echo of the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart.